This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Let's get to the remarks in the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine coming out. It's a double issue. It's about how America has a housing mess and President Biden wants to fix it. Let's get into it. The story by Bloomberg News finance reporter Noah Buhayer with us in Seattle, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber in our interactive broker studio in New York. It is so true when you think of housing policy here in the United States, Joel. It's it's broken. And has been for a while. Um, and Noah did a really amazing job of writing a story that um, I think really uh, helps you make sense of it and where it's been and, and still yet um, maybe maybe how it might change a little bit. Um, uh, but, you know, part of it is just rooted in, um, you know, the, the fact that we've had uh, a, a housing market that is on has been on fire. Uh, inventory is incredibly low. Affordable housing is non-existent in a lot of places, yeah. and that's the thing that looks like a growing mess and a growing problem. So, so um, Noah, uh, talk to us about what a solution might look like. Yeah, well, I don't think it's I don't think it's uh, necessarily going to be just one solution. Um, but uh, part of why I wanted to write this article is to try and make sense um, of where we've been and some of these proposals that the Biden administration is, is putting forward to fix it. Um, first and foremost, uh, uh, what the administration is trying to do um, with more than $50 billion that Congress has already allocated is, is, is fix the immediate problem, which is just the enormous amount of financial strain um, that the, pan- the pandemic has caused, mostly for renters, but, but also for some homeowners. So there's there's more than $50 billion out there. They're trying to, to, to get out to people um, to help them cover back rent uh, racked up during the pandemic. Um, and if they've missed uh, mortgage payments, do that as well. So that's part one. But um, what's really interesting and what a lot of housing policy experts um, I talked with wanted to discuss was, was what's in the infrastructure plan and the American Families Plan, which is what the Biden administration um, has has trotted out to you know help the country in, in their words build back better um and embedded in there are a lot of strategies to fix different parts of the housing system so just for instance um one of them uh which we talk about in the story is a surge in uh the low-income housing tax credit these are tax credits of the federal government puts out there, they're used by affordable housing developers, and they've really been an engine for affordable housing production in this country for a long time. Hey, Noah, to, to what extent does the U.S. government actually have power, the federal government, have power to do this if, if there are zoning laws and regulations, and as you write in your story, um, expanding the supply of homes in some of these places will require taking on the NIMBYs, you know, not in my backyard. Yeah, yeah that's, that's certainly a huge issue, um, and uh, it's it's something that you've seen uh, in places like Minneapolis, where the whole state of Oregon they've they've passed laws and or made 
zoning changes in the last couple of years to allow for more housing development. But you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, the federal government can only do so much here. A lot of what's holding back uh, housing production in this country, especially in really prosperous places, is just the fact that you can't build there. or We make it so much harder for people to add more density and more housing. And so the Biden administration's plan there, um, which has been criticized as, as too timid, is to give uh, municipalities grants to help them rezone and clear away some of these barriers. Um, but they're not, you know, as some economists point out, really, uh, you know, they're giving a carrot, but there's not so much of a stick involved here. Um, some folks pointed out to me that, you know, a more effective way to deal with this would basically be to tie transportation dollars from the federal government, um, you know, getting those to making these sorts of zoning reforms. One of the things I thought was interesting, Noah, in the story that talked about, you know, right now the mortgage market, you can get government-backed loans to buy homes in parts of South Florida that are already experiencing seasonal flooding because of rising sea levels. I know the magazine has done stories about this, where in some communities, the local governments are actually buying up the homes and taking them off the market because we know it's not a good home to own. I mean, there are just parts of the existing infrastructure and housing law that, and policy that just doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's, that's a really good point. It sort of underscores how some things we do in certain parts of our government uh, promote a certain kind of activity, but while at the same time we're trying to, like, uh, uh, maybe not develop in these areas that right. are going to be prone to climate change. And, and that, I think, is really um, the very hard work that has to be done, which is to, how do you align all of these policies be they at the federal level, the state level, or the local level, local level, so that we're actually working towards um, goals, you know, uh, whether they be around climate change or racial equity um, or affordability. And it's, it's just, we have this very complex system that's been built up over decades and decades. Right. And just making sense of that is going to be a challenge. Right, especially in and politics, too, are also involved in all of this. Uh, good stuff. No Buhire, finance reporter at Bloomberg News. These are the remarks in the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. Joel Weber, thank you so much. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. All right, Tim, safe to say it's one of the more telegraphed deals in a while. And today we got confirmation. Amazon buying the MGM movie company, $8.45 billion, really a bet that a nearly century-old Hollywood icon can feed an insatiable demand for streaming content. Feed me, feed me. It's all about that. <laughs> the Bezos machine. Exactly. We've got a great pair to talk about, the, really the two sides of this story, uh, the media and content side, as well as what this move means for Amazon. Gita Ranganathan is technology and media analyst over at Bloomberg Intelligence, our in-house research team. She's on the phone in New Jersey. Spencer Soper is Bloomberg News technology and e-commerce reporter on the phone in Seattle. So let's start with you, Gita. We knew this was coming so um i don't know what's the key takeaways how do we need to as investors maybe look at what this means and what what else might be out there and what might be to come yeah i think carol uh, first of all carol and tim thank you so much for mm -hmm. having me and i just want to say that um you know this is really part of this whole vast reshaping of of the media business of the media landscape so the big are obviously looking to compete by getting bigger. We had the Disney Fox uh, acquisition a few years ago, just a couple of weeks ago. We had Discovery with Warner. Uh, and now you have Amazon and MGM. And, and it's really, I think it really speaks to, uh, you know, the power of content and how everybody is kind of looking to consolidate their position in the streaming space. 
talking about what this means for the other companies, I think uh, it really kind of now separates the haves and the have-nots, if you will. So obviously mm. the independent studios, a few of them being, you know, the, the lion's gates of the world, probably even a Sony uh, obviously, they might see their valuations go up as it, it's kind of, I think, almost a make or break moment now in media when the other remaining players have to really kind of take take a step back, look where they are positioned and if they really have enough firepower to last the, the streaming shakeout, if you will. Hey, Spencer Soper, come on in here and, and give us the Amazon perspective, because for, for years when I've looked at the, what Amazon has done with Amazon Prime Instant Video or Amazon Prime Video or whatever iteration of it is now, I've always looked at it through the lens of, of Amazon Prime and, and sweetening the deal for that $129 a year Amazon Prime subscription because the research has shown that people who are Prime members, they buy more, they buy more expensive items and they shop more frequently. Is it to the point though where you have to look at Amazon's video ambitions beyond Amazon Prime? Uh, that's what they're trying and there are people who are subscribing for the standalone uh, video subscription. So that's part of the play is Amazon needs to offer more to unbundle. But I think the big thing here with Amazon and this acquisition is Amazon traditionally tries to build it on its own. It's spent a lot of uh, time and, you know, several years and a a boatload of money in Hollywood trying to create its own hits and and really doesn't have any. And so they finally had to capitulate and say, you know what, we got to buy James Bond, we got to buy Rocky Balboa, uh, <laughs> and kind of you know use our purse to get into this business that that we've been kind of uh, you know trying to get in on our own without without a big hit to show for it. It was really about buying Legally Blonde. Come on, Spencer, we know, <laughs> I we that know. Was interesting how they highlighted that film in the press release. <laughs> what not, Al? Come on. Well, two <laughs> questions, real quickly. I mean, Spencer, it, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say it was eight billion for RoboCop, and then I think half a million for the rest of it. Uh, all right, all right. But it, but two questions I have. First of all, um, well, let me let me bring you back, Ita. Uh, eight, almost eight and a half billion dollars. Did they pay too much, or they're going to get, you know, a lot for that amount of money? Um, so I don't necessarily think they paid too much. So we ran some numbers. It's a twenty-five x multiple for uh, MGM. That's pretty much in line with what we've seen in the past. So just a few years ago, we had Comcast go out and buy DreamWorks for almost 35 times EBITDA. Mm. If you kind of look at some of those deals, not too bad. Then again, you had Comcast and Apple who came in and take, took a look at MGM and said they really didn't think it was worth more than $6 billion. So, so from that context, yes, I think Amazon paid up a little bit. But I think they're, they're, they're getting the bang for their buck. You just look at what they've done during the pandemic. They, they paid... 125 million for coming to America. They paid 80 million for the Borat sequel. Wow. Right. So, so you look at all of those individual movies, and you look well, here at a studio, right. the library that they're getting. Uh, I think it's definitely, uh, uh, you know, a bang for their buck. Well, and you bring me, you beautifully set me up for what I wanted to ask Spencer, and that is Spencer. Is this all about Jeff and franchise development? Right. You own these brands now, and you can just kind of run with them. They're remaking everything, right? Hmm. It's like, so it's just kind of like, you know, it, it's a safe bet. It's formulaic Hollywood. They've taken the risk. They've tried to create their own hits. Uh, they haven't created them. So let's, let's buy what uh, people love to watch in the past and try to, try to uh, make, make new versions of it, new iterations of it for the future, knowing that we have that big, broad appeal fan base cooked in. So that's definitely uh, a, 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 big, a big piece. And we know... Uh, that Jeff Bezos does see Hollywood, even though Hollywood's seen as this creative place, that he does see a lot of the hits as being fairly formulaic. Hmm. 
Hmm. So this kind of appeals more to his, his, you know, the math part of his brain. Yeah, Gita, come on in here and talk a little bit uh, about what this means for consumers of, of Hulu and consumers who have been used to watching some of this content in, in other places. The Handmaid's Tale, for example, it was touted in the press release today uh, announcing the acquisition. And I'm, I'm wondering if that means that Handmaid's Tale leaves it leaves Hulu, if it goes to Amazon, or is this all about the future future content and less about what exists now? So I think, uh, Tim, that's an excellent point. I think what, what we're really seeing over the at least past few years is that you have all of these studios that are part of conglomerates, uh, and they're all now trying to use their studios to feed their own streaming platforms. So Disney obviously doing that with Disney+. Plus. They also own two-thirds of Hulu. Uh, we're seeing Warner kind of do that with HBO Max. So it's all about you know using that studio content. Amazon obviously did not have that. Now they're getting that with MGM. So we're really going to have to wait and watch and see what they do. But I think we can pretty much uh, count on the fact that they are going to take The Handmaid's Tale or at least future um, you know, seasons of The Handmaid's Tale and definitely throw, throw it on Prime as a way to mm-hmm. kind of turbocharge uh, their subscriber base. All right. Well, great stuff. And certainly a company that is always on the move, Amazon. Uh, great to get uh, so many multiple sides to this story and get them from our own Gita Ranganathan, tech and media analyst over at Bloomberg Intelligence, our in-house group of analysts, and Spencer Soper. We go to him when it comes to Amazon. He is Bloomberg News Technology and e-commerce reporter on the phone in Seattle. It's a big deal. Uh, eight and a half billion dollars. Yeah, second yeah. biggest after Whole Foods. Well, yeah. And if you think, right, exactly. Yeah. Like they do smaller acquisitions. Right. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So a lot going on on this Wednesday, no doubt about it. The world has reopened, certainly when it comes to the business and financial world. We're feeling it. Uh, we also are noticing a story uh, on the Bloomberg, a first-time activist investor, tiny, tiny stake in ExxonMobil, scoring a historic win in its proxy fight with the oil giant signaling the growing importance of climate change to investors. This is a big deal. Bloomberg deal reporter Scott DeVoe here in our Interactive Brokers studio. Um it does feel like a big deal. Are we putting it in perspective in the right way? Yeah, I think like what we're seeing out of, out of this one in particular, and we've started to see this a little bit lately, is that um, it doesn't really ma- matter how big of a stake an, an investor has in a company um, if they have a really good argument. So at Exxon, what they argued was there was uh, an engine number one is, by the way, the the fund. They bought a $37 million stake in Exxon, which is a $250 billion company. 0.02% stake. Yeah, basically nothing. They basically spent as much on the proxy fight as they did on the initial stake. But they came with an argument that said, you know, you've been underperforming your peers, uh, your climate uh, goals are not aggressive enough, and you know you, you're putting your dividend in at risk, basically. You know, based on this strategy, and so you have to make some, some uh, you know significant changes. And I think, you know, while the company probably was not you know open to these ideas, the other investors were, and they got some momentum. And obviously, you know, today they got at least two seats on the board. So, Scott, what what are they going for? What's engine number one going for in terms of changes? What do they want to see? Well, basically, what they argued was up until this point that, and I think, you know, there's a lot of evidence of that. You know, Exxon was a leader in the oil and gas industry, um, but then started to trail behind some of its peers, Chevron in particular. Um, and then, 
they also argued that it, there was a climate angle on this that Exxon was entrenched in carbon based um, the carbon based fuels and wasn't doing enough to reach the 2050 goals or the Paris Agreement and that you know a lot of what they were saying on, when it came to climate was lip service and so they called them on it and you know we've seen obviously the institutional investors like BlackRock and whatnot been very vocal this year um, about how they were going to vote based on ESG issues and so it really struck a chord with a lot of these institutions um, and I think, you know, I think a lot of people that, you know, follow activism didn't think that engine number one had much of a shot at this, but um, they really did have their finger on the pulse of the simmering tension between Exxon itself and its investors. How much is BlackRock pushing kind of the whole momentum here with that? You know, Larry Fink has been so vocal in terms of the importance of climate specifically. And listen, they're the second largest shareholder, uh, institutional shareholder when it comes to ExxonMobil. Um, Kathy Wood told me that, that she kind of speculated that maybe some of what Elon Musk and his kind of pullback on Bitcoin because of its impact uh, and, and on energy usage and impact on the environment, that maybe BlackRock's a big investor in Tesla. How much are they kind of moving the needle on this conversation? Well, I think there's no doubt that they're moving the needle on the conversation. I think that, you know, you wouldn't have... I, I cover a lot of activism campaigns, mm -hmm. and, and I'll, I'll put it in the perspective from an activist perspective. Now, when you see one of these letters go out criticizing a company, there is always going to be an ESG angle on it. And what they're trying to do is not only attract investment from funds that want to invest in, you know, these hedge funds, but want to make sure that they're doing an ESG angle, they're also trying to win over the institutions who have, you know, these these bents on you know, making sure that they're supportive of boards that are implementing these ESG issues. Are we going to look back on today on this period of time as being just a turning point when it comes to ESG? As you point out in your piece, on the same day, uh, management at Chevron were rebuked by their shareholders who voted a proposal to reduce emissions from the companies. DuPont recently suffered an 81 percent vote against management on plastic pollution disclosures. Are we at a turning point here? I think you I think you what you're seeing is something that's been simmering from a little while like but it, there was a very fine point put on a lot of these institutions if you think pension funds all these other institutions they're very serious about climate change now and that's something that the oil and gas industry is going to have to deal with well it's also to be fair like we know at some point there's going to be probably increasingly greater regulation we're seeing it globally we're seeing it here in the united states i mean the dynamics of this company eventually i'm assuming we will transition to from a carbon-based economy i mean that's where the world's going it may not happen overnight right well but that was the that right? was the argument yeah. i mean if you don't start now you're going to be left behind i mean i think engine number one said something along the lines of you know you there have been great american companies that have missed the way the world's going and you know fallen to the wayside and so they were they were saying you're risking becoming one of these like defunct iconic brands. Well, I think it's fun, funny. Is it the Dow is yes, 125 years old? I was just old, thinking of the same thing, Carol. Right. And like the companies that were in the Dow initially or over its 125 year lifespan, there are those companies that aren't around anymore. And you sure. do wonder about the fate of something like an Exxon. Yeah. I mean, it, that's that was the argument. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Well, it's amazing. We ran out of time, but I've got to just tell you, uh, your story and your interview with Carl Icahn, really a killer. It's among the most read on the Bloomberg Terminal. Uh, and I know our TV team also caught up with him, but it was greased thanks to your story. So thank you. Everybody can check it all out. Uh, all of Scott's work at Bloomberg.com. I'm driving in my car. 
Just got about 10 and a half minutes left in today's trading session. It is time for the drive to the close. And Amy Zhang is with us. She is Executive Vice President, Portfolio Manager over at Alger. She oversees several small cap and mid cap strategies. She is with us on the phone from Connecticut. Amy, nice to have you here. How are you? Uh, great. Thank you, Carol. Thank you for having me here today. Well, it's good to have you here in an interesting day, interesting week, and maybe partly because of the holiday. We had a fair amount of news flow, but it does feel like investors kind of not quite sure where to go next. And maybe it's because we're in this Netherland uh, between earnings cycles. But how do you see it? How do you see the market environment, especially for the mid-cap space that you play within? Yeah, well, I think I feel very constructive overall on the equity market, and I I am very bullish um, mid-caps now, especially uh, mid-cap growth stocks. Uh, I think we can make a strong case uh, now for those stocks. Um, as you know, there's been a significant, you know, rotation from uh, growth to value. But I think over the long term, you know, value is more of a trade, not an investment in the sense that also a lot of value stocks now um, have built in a lot of uh, great expectations going forward, uh, whereas a lot of um, growth stocks, the structural secular tailwinds for them uh, still are intact. And the valuation wise, they come down a lot. But more importantly, you know, at Alger, we are... um, Stop pickers, and we think you can really, you know, right. have your growth cake and eat a recovery too. So mm. those are the companies that we have exposure to. Are the growth, high quality growth stocks with cyclical and markets exposure, um, you know, today. Well, we want to talk picks. I just want to give our audience. Uh, on uh, YouTube and also here at Bloomberg Radio, just a little perspective. If I look at the Russell ca- Russell uh, 2000 small caps, it's up almost 14% on the year. The S&P 500, big cap companies, it's up uh, just shy of 12%. And if I look at the S&P mid cap 400 index, uh, looking at that mid-range sector, it is up about 17, almost 18% on the year. So Amy, let's, let's drill down a little bit. One of the names that you like specifically is U.S. Foods, ticker is USF. What's the fundamental story as to why you like it? Uh, right. U.S. Food is the second largest food service distributor in the United States. It's also the most innovative food distributor and most tech-savvy. Uh, so it really fitting to, you know, what I talk about. In, uh, they both have the secular trends uh, and cyclical recovery. And here's why. Uh, first of all, you know, there's a multi-decade secular trend for dining outside of home. Um, and uh, with the pandemic, unfortunately, that that number, you know, that sort of uh, regress, you know, before the pandemic is almost like 50-50 uh, inside home and outside of home. And during uh, at, at this moment, it's roughly about, say, 35 percent by industry reports. So now, as you know, we have a lot of pent up demand as people have been cooped up at home. And it is also, you know, restaurants also have a lot of benefit from government support 
you know, with the 29 billion restaurant revitalization fund recently. So, so that's a very strong secular trend is still in play. And U.S. Food specifically as a company is extremely well positioned in all of those, you know, in the hospitality and the restaurant. So it's really a picks and shovel play for us. They also have the scale capital technology and product offerings to really uh, meet customers' needs and, you know, in, the, in this continue to gain market share uh, from the weaker, smaller players because the industry is consolidating. And also it is great catch-up play because U.S. food still trades as a discount to its peers, Cisco and the Performance Foods. So we think uh, the, the company is really well positioned at this point. And Tigger, let me just correct. I think I said USFT. I meant USFD, just to make sure our audience heard that right. Yeah, and uh, I'm, I'm curious, Amy, about uh, another uh, company that's in that's one of your picks that's somewhat in the restaurant industry, Middleby Corporation, ticker M-I-D-D. So far this year, up uh, more than 27%. Why, why are you bullish on it? Yeah, with, Middleby has been a uh, you know compounder for us, and it's a market leader uh, in the food service equipment industry. Um, you know, with a very well diversified portfolio and customer mix. Uh, it's definitely a recovery play because restaurants have been hit hard by COVID. Uh, you know, almost all chain restaurants are their customers, right? You may it may not be a household name, but I think we all come across Middleby every day. If you're in Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts. Mm-hmm. The, you know, Cheesecake Factory, McDonald's. So so that um, the demand is really very, very strong. A, they, they just reached the back, you know, last quarter. They have a very strong quarter. Backlot is record high. Demand is very strong. Supply is very tight. So they actually institute, you know, price increases. Uh, they're going to continue to have, like, more price increases this year. And the, the company also has a very strong secular tailwind. It's been always been very innovative that, you know, it's leveraged to the secular trend of automation within restaurants, right, and also in the kitchens. So they generate a lot of savings in terms of labor, energy, and other costs for restaurants and food processing companies. Uh, a great example is Middleby's recently launched Open Kitchen uh, Internet of Things-based platform. So that's really one of its kind and really can automate the whole entire restaurant. And also, you know, recently the company... Um, I had a transformative um, acquisition, um, you know, uh, acquired its uh, competitor, well-built. And uh, that's, you know, really going to be very accretive to them, and it's going to make them uh, more dominant in the industry. And uh, last but not least, the company has very high financial quality, with actually with low cyclicality, you know, overall. So very strong margins and free cash flow. So it's really a compounder that can really transcend sort of economic you know, volatility, but clearly is extremely well positioned uh, to capitalize the uh, cyclical uh, recovery now. Yeah, and a stock that was up almost 18% last year, I'm assuming as things started to recover a little bit, uh, and is up about 28% so far this year. Um, are you finding lots of opportunity in the mid-cap space right now and just got about uh, a minute or so? Yes, definitely, because mid-cap has, you know, over the past 20 years really has uh, outperformed both small and large caps because it has the best of both worlds. Like small caps, they are less covered and operate in an inefficient market, which is a very fertile ground for us at Algiers because we're stock pickers. And they also offer similar uh, gross potential to small caps. On the other hand, they are less risky than small caps because they, they are more similar to large caps 
in terms of financial quality and liquidity. But at this point, you know, they are cheaper than large cap growth peers. And also uh, on a fundamental basis, they are projected to have higher earnings growth uh, compared to the large cap peers. Uh, they're a lot less. I think on average, there's only 10 analysts covering, you know, mid-cap uh, growth companies, whereas 20, time, 20 analysts covering a large cap right. growth company. So, so I think it's very attractive at this point, and we're very bullish on that. And we just recently launched Alger Mid-Cap 40 Got ETF. It. All right. And yeah, and as you said, mid-cap versus large caps versus small caps, you've definitely seen the outperformance so far here in 2021. Amy, thank you so much. Love talking specific names. Amy Zhang, Portfolio Manager over at Alger, joining us on the phone from Connecticut. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.